DW Inside Europe Good morning everyone Good morning please take your seats It is 10 a.m. German time we are ready to start So welcome to the Global Media Forum 2023 Hello and welcome to a rather different edition of Inside Europe with me Kate Laycock in Germany. To mark Deutsche Welle's 16th Global Media Forum, we're going to be spending the next half hour in the company of three journalists, each very different to the other, but each distinguished by the courage and compassion of their work. They are Jan Dunder, Kristina Atovska, and Jan Jessen. I hope you'll enjoy meeting them as much as I did. Now, this week was the first time that my preparation for an interview has involved watching mobile phone footage of my interview partner being shot. It was also the first time that I've liaised not with personal assistants or secretaries, but with bodyguards about the exact time and meeting place for the interview. The man I was trying to meet is called Jan Dunda. He's probably Turkey's best-known opposition journalist. Once the head of Turkey's most important independent newspaper, he survived an assassination attempt, jail, and solitary confinement before escaping to Germany in 2016, where he now writes for Die Zeit newspaper, makes documentaries, and runs an independent YouTube channel. More about that later. Even here in Germany, however, Chan's life is not safe, as evidenced by the four muscular men with headsets and a watchful alertness who shadow him everywhere, even into the Inside Europe studio. Despite all this baggage, Chan's eyes sparkle with mischief and fun, as I found out when I asked him how he'd spent the fateful election night back in May. when all his hopes of being able to return home were dashed as it became clear that president Recep Tayyip Erdogan was going to hold on to power we organized a party uh, at election night in berlin at gorki theater and we were really excited so i asked my son to prepare a music for the night we prepared two playlists one is uh, full of joyful melodies and the other one is a kind of mourning <laughs> so unfortunately we failed to play anything out of after the results you laughed there i have to pick up on this because when i i mean you know as i explained to you i've been watching footage either made by you or made about you and one of the things that really grabbed me was your laugh you know despite everything you're laughing where does that laugh come from this is the way of part of the struggle let's say is <laughs> i'm not playing I, i i'm always an optimistic person and i, I don't like you know being so pessimistic and i am hopeful i'm not playing really i'm hopeful i don't think that it would go for decades but for the moment it's painful and i mean just the act of hoping opens you up to pain right because if you give up hope then you've nothing to lose but if you open yourself up to hope you open yourself up to disappointment and that's what you've done exactly but on the other hand this is the this is the only mean we have to stay powerful to stay alive if you don't hope then what else can make you feel good or give you strength to to struggle 
So every morning is a new one. Uh, if you're in exile, of course, you start the day with, you know, checking the news about your country. And unfortunately, rarely you can get something good and people are suffering. And it's really painful to see them suffering from afar. And that gives you a kind of a guilt feeling. But still we are alive and then you feel the responsibility you have. And when you feel it, then you don't have the right to be disappointed. You have to keep on going. You have to keep on going. This is, I have to say, a first for me. I, I've never interviewed someone with a security detail present. Your life in Germany is anything but safe. What's that like? What does it do to you as a person? What does it do to you as a journalist? It's strange for a journalist to have uh, protection, of course, but it was necessary, unfortunately. I had an attack in Turkey uh, by a gunman, and I almost uh, I survived from this assassination attempt. And that's why, knowing that Germany is not safe for Erdogan opponents, the German government uh, wanted to secure my security issue. It's a bit sad that German protection teams are protecting me from my own citizens. But this is not our fault. This is not the people who hate me. Uh, of course, this is not also their fault. Unfortunately, Erdogan is spreading hatred all over the world and showing journalists as enemies, targeting his opponents as traitors. And many people... Unfortunately, they take it as a mission, you know, to destroy the, the enemy. And I guess the problem is not here in Germany, but in Ankara. The path that took you here, that took you to this place as a journalist in exile, it's been a long path. I mean, there was a, a crunch point when there was a story that you knew was a line that you had to decide whether or not to cross. But before that... There was a, a, a long trajectory of growing authoritarianism in Turkey. And I, I heard you once pinpoint a particular moment at which you felt that begin. And that was 2013, Getsi Park, the protests against the development of that public space in Istanbul. Maybe you could tell me about how it begins. Sure. It was a very innocent protest meeting of young people who wants to protect their park and prevent the government turning the park into a shopping center. And it was so powerful, so innocent and so peaceful that many people joined them in a couple of hours. Then all of a sudden the government decided to clear the park from the protesters using the harsh police force. And then this has become a bigger protest campaign and has become one of the biggest uprising in Turkey's history, maybe the biggest. I guess this was the peak, not only for us, but also for Erdogan. We realized the power of people, and unfortunately Erdogan realized the power of people. I lost my job because of my coverage in Gezi Park. This was the last time I was like doing something for mainstream media. Gezi changed everything in Turkey. You talk about, yeah, the last time that you worked for mainstream media. 
your own channel. You have to tell me the name in yeah. Turkish and you have to translate it for me. Okay. First of all, let me tell you that I was arrested back in 2015. And after the decision of the, the court, I tweeted as uh, we are arrested. And it has become the name of my book. And they made it a play out of it. Then when I came to Germany, we set up a radio station and we were searching for a name. And this time I said, we are free. And it's Özgürüz in Turkish. I would like to end this interview with the soundtrack to freedom. Tell me what would have been on the playlist that you never got to play. Uh, would you like to play one of them? Yeah, go on. Give me, what, what, <laughs> okay. what should we go out to? Okay, then let's play Gel Yavaş Gel, Yerler Yaş. That means calm down, guy. Uh, it's dangerous for you. Let's, let's play this one and listen. Fantastic. Do you think you'll ever be able to play it in Turkey? Will you be able to dance to this tune in Turkey one day? That's the main target, really. Uh, that's why I'm living for, and I'm sure we'll be dancing together on the streets of free Turkey. <laughs> The soundtrack to freedom, as envisaged by Turkish journalist in exile, Can Dunda. There was no security team involved in my meeting with my next guest on the programme, just a friendly WhatsApp exchange and a quick walkover to the Global Media Forum Conference Centre to pick her up. Television journalist and documentary maker Kristina Chris Atovska doesn't face any threats in her own country. She's from North Macedonia, a small nation on the edge of the Balkans. If you've heard about North Macedonia in recent years, then it's probably been in the context of the country's seemingly endless struggle to overcome the vetoes, first of Greece, now of Bulgaria, that have stopped it from becoming an official member of the EU. Christina believes passionately, though, that if her country wants to claim a place on the international stage, then it should be investing in its journalists and supporting them to travel to the places where conflicts are happening. Instead, she says, she was forced to crowdfund her multi-award-winning 2022 documentary, Siren Lullabies, which documents the horrors faced by civilians caught up in the war in Ukraine. Christina is not one to hold back, so by the time that we sat down in the studio together, I already felt that I knew the most important thing about her. So, Christina, I've just kidnapped you away from the Global Media Forum, which is happening next door in the UN Conference Centre, and literally within five minutes of meeting you, you had told me that ever since you were a little girl, you wanted to be a war reporter. Yes, and I don't know why. I really can't explain. I just uh, wish I have since forever. How did people react? I mean, did they take you seriously? No, no one, never. Especially uh, in my country, in North Macedonia, they all think that I am wasting my money and my time doing all those trainings because nobody from North Macedonia ever goes to war zones. Wow. Because the media don't want to support that kind of reporting. Practically, Macedonian media are somehow addicted of international news agency and they, they, they don't invest in journalism. This is perhaps a little surprising given the history of Macedonia, where it is geographically as well. 
yes, it's very strange for all of the region, for all the Balkans, because we had this huge Yugoslav war. After that, we had a Kosovo-Serbia conflict. So it's very, very strange. For me, it was very, very hard to go to Ukraine in the first place, in the first time. Practically, I wasn't supported uh, fully from my media. I wasn't supported from our national uh, service, our national agency. I called them all and they all say no. So practically, my friends landed me the money to go and report from Ukraine, which is very sad. And I don't think that happens anywhere else in the world. And extremely dangerous as well, because you don't have the protection of going there with a big organization behind you, with the insurance, with the security. You're, I mean, you, you are literally on your own there. What do you think it is about you that draws you to conflict zones? I dedicated my career to fight injustice. And the biggest injustice that can happen to anyone is to wake up with an enemy army in, in their backyards or front yards. So... Being with people who need us the most is something that drags me back to Ukraine. Hmm. It's interesting because when you talk about, uh, you know, having always wanted to be a, a war reporter and everything, I can see your, your eyes sparkle. I mean, there must be a part of you that's an adrenaline junkie and, and likes the risk and everything. But there is also the part of you that has made this incredibly thoughtful documentary which bears very quiet, modest witness to some unthinkable things. How do you slow down, come down from that sense of injustice, that desire for action, and just quietly be with people in their pain? I don't know. It's a, it comes natural somehow to be with the people, to feel with them, to cry with them. I was there for three months and I saw a lot of things. It's really hard to believe. For me, it was hard to believe when I first entered Bucha and I see all those bodies laying around the street left for days. But again, there are a lot of living people with their tragic stories and they're the ones that made me cry the most. For example, people with the little kids who lost everything, their houses, their, uh, their belongings, they really touched me in the way because uh, as television journalist, uh, somehow I know when to put a barrier between me and my emotions. And now because I was all alone without a cameraman, for the first time I was holding the camera and somehow knowing that I am not in front of the camera made me cry all the time when I was listening and interviewing those people. So it was harder uh, dealing and interviewing living people than maybe see all of those pictures on the streets. That's so interesting. So, I mean, if you're there as a, as a TV reporter in front of the camera, you have a, an active role, you're a participant in a way. But if you're behind the camera, you're just witnessing. Yeah. You're, for the first time, I was behind the camera and for the first time I was able to be just a human. As I was going to uh, more and more dangerous places, people more and more understand the work of journalists. For example, in uh, Lviv, people, civilians, are not very keen to journalists. But from the other side, in Kharkiv, uh, people, when you go out on the street uh, with a helmet and uh, marked as press, people are showing such a big gratitude that also made me cry. I mean, I remember 
one woman in the exchange office when I entered and she saw me marked as press, she started crying out loud. She said, can I go out and hug you? They understand what is our role there and they're showing their gratitude that for me was really emotional journey. What would your advice be for little girls now who, like you back then, are saying, I want to be a war reporter? To never give up, no matter what everyone says. The most important thing in life is to never give up. Hmm. Well, that is a beautiful place to end. Thank you so much, Christina, for joining me. Thank you so much for this interview. It means a lot to me. Christina Atovska there, director of the award-winning documentary Siren Lullabies. I'm Kate Laycock in Germany. You're listening to Inside Europe. I would love to interview you. You are the reason that I am still on Facebook. That was basically my pitch to Jan Jessen, German war reporter and political editor of the Neue Ruhe Zeitung. And it is true. Facebook has been the main medium through which I've been following Jan's work ever since I became hooked to his story as he got caught up in the chaos of the Kabul evacuations back in 2021. I also listen to his podcast, which translates as This is How War Feels, and I know that the destinations he's racked up in this year alone trace a map of the world's hotspots. Malawi, North Iraq, Syria, Afghanistan, and of course, Ukraine. War is very special. I mean, life is somehow crystal clear. You you really feel... The, the very good side of uh, human being and the very bad side of human being, like um, the devilish side and the, the, the angel side. You see a lot of people who are helping other people, uh, but on the other side you, you see what people can harm each other. Uh, it's, it's not comparable with, with something I ever experienced in, in uh, peacetimes. That clarity that you're describing, that good, bad, black, white, uh, even... A tiny little act of kindness can be a radical act. That must be something that really gets under your skin. I mean, have you found out things about yourself through being in places where reality gets reduced to that? Yeah, sure. I mean, uh, you, you, uh, there is a, f- a famous saying um, that only the dead experience the end of the war. And I think this is somehow true. I mean, um, you will never forget what you saw, what you felt, what you smelled, what you heard in, in uh, these kind of war zones and uh, surely you take this back home and um, sometimes it makes you more humble I think and uh, that's it I think humble I mean back home for you is uh, it, I mean it's a, a, a day job with a, an awful lot of responsibility you know you're the political editor for the Neue Ruhrzeitung so this big regional paper and you've got people who depend on your decisions and your presence and your input and often within a week You'll have had a couple of days in the office, you'll have had a couple of days in a war zone, and then you're back again. I mean, how on earth do you manage to hold these two parts of yourself together? Sometimes it's difficult, sure. I mean, um, 
when you come back from uh, an active ball zoom and uh, on the next day you do a story about uh, the first day uh, on which uh, people are free to not bear a corona mask and you have to do interviews with these guys and asking them how free do you feel now this is sometimes a bit difficult but it's um, I, I can manage it I, I can still manage it and I think if you can't manage it anymore and if you uh, see that these contradictions uh, are too big then you should stop it should touch your heart what you see but it should never touch your soul and if it's, if it's touching your soul then you should maybe stop I walked with you to this building from uh, the conference center and it, it took us what five minutes and within that five minutes I'd had all these stories that had just been sort of tumbling out of you and they, they were all about people and they were all filled with sort of warmth and care I, I mean does, does compassion have a limit does friendship have a limit no I mean <clears throat> I, I love human beings I just want to do stories about the people I just want to meet people I just want to talk with them for example in, uh, in Ukraine I met this guy, Alexander, and um, we passed the parking lot and we saw a lot of destroyed Russian tanks there, um, wreckages of, of these tanks, and I uh, said, oh, let's stop there, let's take, uh, let's take some pictures. We went there and then we saw some destroyed civilian cars. And in front of one of these civilian cars, there was a man. You could see he was grieving, he was crying, and um, the car he stood in front of was totally destroyed. There were a lot of big holes inside this car, and inside of this car, this was the story, his uh, wife, his father-in-law, and his son has been murdered in uh, March. And it was the first time that he saw this car. And you saw the handbag of his wife spilled with blood. And he was just standing there, and he just wanted to say goodbye. And he was touching the car like he was feeling them or whatever. And uh, we couldn't talk that much, uh, but it was very intense, very intense. Like, um, I don't know, that there was this energy of, desperation and, and this, this grieving and um, so I hugged him and we cried together and then uh, he went and um, one of the, the, the doors of this car was still open and then he closed this door and then he went and um, this was also something that is deep inside my mind. Wow. These are moments when somebody's story is is there it's it's sort of written on their face you can you can sense it mm. yeah right i mean it, it sounds always somehow cynical but for the story right you see um that there might be something interesting and uh, this is also something you have to really take care of you see you're talking about cynicism i, I had the opposite reaction i found mm. it you know deep i mean deeply human but also almost spiritual in mm. a way you know the essence of a person right there to be read to be accessed yeah, and this is uh this is the, the, the most somehow difficult part of the job i mean you have to always be with these people and i feel always really exhausted after we had these encounters mm. uh encounters with these people so you're sort of st taking a step back and allowing yourself to become a conduit for other people's yes, stories right. Right. but have you ever experienced a moment where that's happened to you where you felt your story your sense of who you are suddenly come into focus no not really i, I, I just uh yeah, as, as you say i always try to step back mm. i'm not the story i'm just the one who um, reports about it it's not about me i'm nothing mm. yeah and that's where i'm going to end the interview okay. <laughs> thank you so much for joining me yeah mm. you're welcome it was a pleasure <laughs> it's an absolute pleasure for me <laughs> 
German journalist Jan Jessen there. And if you would like to hear that or any of the other interviews in this Global Media Forum special again, then just head over to our podcast pages. This is Inside Europe, and I'm Kate Laycock in Germany. This is Inside Europe and I'm Kate Blaycock in Germany. Coming up in the next half hour, why Erdogan's victory may be a secret cause for relief in EU circles. They will be continuing to enjoy the benefits of their comfort zone. Uh, and also uh, it will also mean the continuation of transactionalism in Turkish Western relations. How the blockade of Nagorno-Karabakh is impacting students. What drew Ukrainian theatre makers to a play about Ireland's linguistic past? And who could resist a trip to Verona's iconic Roman amphitheatre in opera season? Certainly not us. Before we get into those stories, here's an added contribution that we were not expecting. Earlier in the week, I met up with our Brussels correspondent, Terry Schultz, at the Global Media Forum in Bonn. She was off the next day to cover some of the final exercises in NATO's Air Defender War Games, which have been happening in the skies above Germany for the past two weeks and which represent the biggest drill of their type since the alliance was formed in 1949. Terry had already covered the exercises for us when they began, so she was doubtful that she'd have a new angle. Call me if you get yourself sent up in a plane, I joked. Then, just before we were about to go into the studio... She sent me this. I'm in the cockpit of a German A400 aircraft, so you're just going to have to forget the, the, the terrible noise, but there's not really any way around that. NATO's Air Defender 2023, the largest air exercises in, in NATO's history. Exercises that were four years in, in the making uh, have taken on an added significance so there are 10,000 soldiers and airmen taking part in these simulations. What I've been watching today is uh, something that wouldn't have even been possible for a European aircraft even four years ago when they started planning the exercises. And that is air-to-air refueling with European planes. And again, what would be all of the exercises to demonstrate the interoperability of all of NATO allies, with 25 of them taking part in Air Defender, um, and, and obviously the, the strength of the U.S.-European relationship, uh, it's definitely also a goal to show that Europe has developed self-sufficiency and some key capabilities, and this is one of them. Uh, the fact that a, a 
German planes can now do this without the help of the Americans adds a lot of strength to NATO, something of which German officers I'm with here are uh, understandably proud to show off. Ah, I'm being told that we are... I need to go sit down. We're going to now uh, land. Thank you for flying with German hosts. Carry yourself. DW, somewhere over North Sea. The indefatigable Terry Schultz there. She is followable on Mastodon and Twitter. Now, on with the show. Broadcasting from Germany. This is Inside Europe. Each June 20th, the world marks World Refugee Day. In Europe, this was done under the shadow of what may prove to be the Mediterranean's worst ever tragedy. 750 people are thought to have been aboard the migrant vessel which capsized off the coast of Greece on June 14th. Whilst bodies continue to be found, some 500 or so people still remain unaccounted for. It was images like these which led in 2016 to the EU signing a controversial pact with Turkey, pledging $6 billion in return for Turkey keeping refugees in the country and preventing their onwards journey. Turkey currently hosts over 3 million refugees from neighbouring Syria, as well as refugees from countries such as Iraq and Afghanistan. With the re-election of President Recep Tayyip Erdogan, the expectation that they will be able to stay has grown. Dorian Jones reports from Istanbul. At the Istanbul Orthotic Persesis Centre, Syrian refugees patiently wait for measurements and fittings. Many Syrian refugees who fled to Turkey lost not only their homes and their country, but their limbs as well. 16-year-old Semir's parents and four siblings were killed in the civil war. He lost his legs, but says he now hopes to walk again. They helped me a lot with everything, praise be to God. We are training bit by bit on the new limbs. And as we progress, they will change to the new prosthesis. I will start walking again, step by step. The Istanbul Prosthetic Center was set up by the Turkish charity, the Humanitarian Relief Foundation, an international doctors' association, with financial support mainly from Kuwait. Since its foundation five years ago, it's been working flat out. <laughs> The specially trained staff carefully craft each individual artificial leg and arm. The centre also uses the latest state-of-the-art technology, including 3D printers, all under the supervision of Professor Yashar Tata. He says the brutality of the civil war has brought unique challenges. Especially in Syria, there are a high number of amputees involving multiple limb losses. Burns caused by barrel bombs also posed major challenges for us. Many of the amputees have had to have new operations to rectify the injuries from previous operations, which in many cases were carried out hurriedly in the war zone. We have served around 2,050 amputees, and we have made approximately 4,000 prosthetic limbs. This is a huge number. Few centers in the world can make so many prostheses in such a short time. 
February's deadly earthquakes in Turkey is adding to the center's work. Many of those who lost limbs in the disaster were refugees. Turkey hosts over 3 million Syrian refugees, along with large numbers of Iraqis and Afghans. Anti-refugee sentiment is growing, often manifesting itself in graffiti. On a wall near the center, the words reclaim our country from the refugees have been sprayed. Mustafa Uzbek of the Humanitarian Relief Foundation admits there is growing public unease. There can be societal problems arising from the arrival of a large number of refugees. Turkey's recent economic issues have added to this. Plus, the elections saw some politicians especially bring up the issue of refugees, which has added to tensions. In May's presidential elections, Recep Tayyip Erdogan's challengers vowed to return millions of refugees to their countries of origin. Despite his own nationalist rhetoric, analysts say Erdogan's re-election will come as a relief not only to refugees but also to the European Union, which pays Turkey to host refugees. Sehar Güvenç is a professor of international relations at Istanbul's Kardahas University. He says the refugees have become an important bargaining chip for Erdogan, as well as facilitating a dialogue between Ankara and Brussels. The Europeans, probably they were relieved when Erdogan was re-elected, because that means, you know, the, the refugee deal, which matters a lot uh, for the EU leaders, will remain operational. So. They will be continuing to enjoy the benefits of their comfort zone. It will also mean the continuation of transactionalism in Turkish-Western relations in particular. And both sides have learned to deal with each other on a transactionalist basis. Following his election victory, Erdogan vowed to step up the building of homes in areas of Syria outside of Damascus' control to facilitate the voluntary return of a million Syrians. How many will take that offer remains to be seen. Dorian Jones, DW, Istanbul. From Turkey now, we move east to Armenia and via WhatsApp across the Armenian border with Azerbaijan and into the disputed region of Nagorno-Karabakh, which is populated primarily by ethnic Armenians but claimed by Azerbaijan. Nearly three years ago, a 44-day war was fought over the competing claims. By the war's end, entire towns had fallen to Azerbaijan and thousands of Armenians were displaced. The conflict has continued in the years since, with frequent military clashes erupting. And for the last six months, Azerbaijan has blocked the one road that connects Nagorno-Karabakh to Armenia, effectively cutting off the region from the outside world. Levi Bridges reports from the Armenian capital Yerevan on how the blockade is impacting students. In the hallways of the Lyceum, a school in Nagorno-Karabakh's regional capital, Stepanakert, students socialize between classes. The sound has been sent to me by a teacher over WhatsApp. Because of the road blockade, it's impossible for me to travel to the region. Everything sounds normal, but the blockade has really disrupted the school year. 
During the winter, schools here shut down because there was no gas to heat them. Authorities say Azerbaijan periodically cut off their gas and electricity supply. When the schools reopened, students wore hats and coats because it was so cold. 16-year-old Arpi Esmaryan walked to school because there was no fuel to run buses. You had to walk through the snow and the freezing cold. It was a struggle sometimes. If you were lucky enough, you could find a car, but like that was a very rare situation. Once spring came, things got easier. But Ani Haratunian, a teacher at the Lyceum, says they're already having problems preparing for the next school year because of the blockade. We can't get our laptops, computers. We can't get all the books that we ordered. They are all stuck in Yerevan. The school closures were a setback for students who'd just been through the pandemic when some schools went remote. You can't even do remote education now because of the electricity shortages. Mitakse Hakapian is a teacher and politician who sits on the regional government's education committee. She says, at least with COVID, we could manage the risks in schools. But this situation, living under blockade, is depriving kids of an education. She says she wishes they could go back to the pandemic when everything was easier. Just over 300 kilometers away from Stepanakert, on the other side of the blockade, in the Armenian capital Yerevan, life for students is continuing as normal. On a gray morning, Nanor Balabanyan, an Armenian educator who spent much of her life in the U.S., walks through Yerevan with two college students. They don't speak great English, so Balabanyan translates. How old are you, Arusik? 19. And how old are you, Zara? 19. 19 as well. Balabanyan runs a nonprofit here called the Hidden Road Initiative that provides educational and leadership opportunities for Armenians. Today, she and the students are going to buy hair dryers and scissors so the women can open a beauty salon to earn money while they study. Balabanyan says even though more Armenian women attend university than men, some still aren't encouraged to seek higher education. It's more this mindset that the woman should marry at 18 and the man should work, bring the money. It's not everywhere like this, but there are still some villages where this idea is pretty strongly held. It's now much harder for Armenian students on the other side of the blockade, inside Nagorno-Karabakh, to get the support they need. The ongoing conflict is affecting young people's well-being in many ways. Nina Shafardyan, a teacher in a village in Nagorno-Karabakh near the border, told me teachers used to take students on hiking trips in the Caucasus Mountains. But now it's too dangerous because soldiers from Azerbaijan sometimes shoot Armenians and their landmines. Sometimes people just find unused weapons from the war and they explode on them. And this happened in our area as well. And Armenian university students in Nagorno-Karabakh have less options for where they can study. Darina Minasian, a student in the region, is hoping to go to university in Yerevan. The road is blocked and I have no opportunity to travel to Yerevan. And I have to look for some other universities, maybe local universities. But there are less options for studying specialized careers like medicine inside Nagorno-Karabakh. On the other side of the blockade in Armenia, students don't have these problems. 
Okay, one more block, one more block, one more block. But it's that way. Back in Yerevan, educator Nanor Balabanyan and the two students she's accompanying have almost reached the store where they'll buy supplies to launch a new beauty salon. Inside, the two women select makeup and pick through hair clips. Balabanyan tells me one of the students, Zara, had to convince her conservative father that it was a good idea for her to go to college. But here she is, like one half year into her university, and she's so excited to be this new woman who has skills. That girl feels she's important. Balabanyan says there's nothing more important for Armenians than education. It's a big part of how Armenians are making it through this current situation, where many of them are living under a blockade. No one is helping us or giving us assistance, so the only way we can fight is by our activism and our words. And you do that by having a good education and knowledge. Armenia and Azerbaijan are currently negotiating a peace deal, and Armenia's government has signaled they might accept Azerbaijan's control over Nagorno-Karabakh, which has outraged many Armenians. Even if a peace deal can be signed and the road opens, some believe the deal would result in the mass displacement of Armenians from the region. No matter what happens, it seems the education of young people in Nagorno-Karabakh could be disrupted for some time to come. Levi Bridges, DW, Yerevan, Armenia. We move now to the first of two cultural offerings with which we're going to end the show. The first comes to us from the Abbey Theatre in Dublin. For one week only, Ireland's iconic National Theatre has been hosting its Ukrainian counterpart, the Lesia Ukrainka National Academic Drama Theatre and its production of Translations by the late Irish playwright Brian Friel. Sebastian Stevenson secured himself a seat at the tech rehearsal to find out why Ukrainian theatre makers are turning to an Irish play to explore their own struggle for cultural survival. I'm at the tech rehearsal in Ireland's Abbey Theatre for Lesia Ukrainka National Academic Drama Theatre's production of translations by Brian Friel. The play Translations is set in the Irish-speaking fictional town of Balia Beg, in the northwest county Donegal in the summer of 1833. The story follows Manus and Father Hugh, who both teach in Irish at an underground hedge school officially banned by the British colonial powers who are constructing an official school where only English will be spoken. Meanwhile, Owen, the other son, has come up from Dublin and has been hired by the British Army to assist in making English translations of Irish-named towns, villages, rivers and other localities. In the story world, the people of Beg speak Gaelic, but their world is changing and their language is dying. Will they accept, integrate or resist? Assistant Director of Ukraine's National Theatre, Anastasia Pavlenko, tells me in the foyer why they chose this play. Our director had chosen uh, this play before the full invasion. And after the full invasion, um, we understood that we realized that uh, this text is uh, about us. It's each line is about Ukrainian people nowadays. So um, 
there was no doubt to to choose this play. But how did the National Irish Theatre find out about this production? Artistic director and co-director of the Abbey Theatre, Katrina McLaughlin, tells the story. Well, actually, um, Stephen Ray, who the play was actually written for and performed it as part of Field Day in 1980, came to see another production with um, John Cunningham and spoke to me about the fact that this production was happening in Kiev. And uh, it just seemed like an opportunity that was too good to miss. Stephen has a particular, um, I suppose, um, sensitivity to this play. When it was first produced in 1980 in Derry, it was produced in the Guildhall. And he talks about how the helicopters would come low and fly over the Guildhall in an effort to drown out the words. And it really is a sort of a, a... an indication of how powerful plays are, how powerful words are. This idea of the Ukrainians to, to perform it in Ukrainian is is in itself a kind of an act of, of, of um, resistance. And I find that really important and really exciting and a commitment to the idea that their language, their culture, their people will, will endure. Please note the patrons who leave the performance may not be readmitted. We hope you enjoy the performance. Tosula Gun Gumunyev Shivtanov Asun Leru, God of Mahagov. Thank you. Vitarmo of Nationalnomu Teatri Irlandi Abbey Theatre. Znatoyu Vaspeki, prosimo vas uznajomotisya z najbližshim požežnim vyhodom. Nagadimo, sho fototechnidor. It's opening night. Everyone settles down and the show's about to begin. After the performance, the atmosphere is buzzing. But I catch one or two people as I make my way out that are deeply moved. Um, I guess I've been thinking about the parallels between our situation here in Ireland and the loss of our language and the loss of place names here and the disconnect that that's caused between us and the actual land that we're living in when we lose those place names. Uh, I was born in Ternopil in Ukraine um, and moved over to Dublin when I was four years old. The, the story, of course, is extremely powerful, especially being performed in Ireland, about Ireland, who experienced the same pain and suffering as Ukraine is experiencing now. Ireland is not in a position to offer much military assistance, but perhaps it is supporting Ukraine by providing a stage to make sure that Ukrainian culture can be expressed and not wiped off the map. Sebastian Stevenson, DW, Dublin. And if you're reluctant to vacate your theatre seats just yet, I have good news. We're off to the opera next, and there, there may even be cushions. In the meantime, I'm Kate Laycock in Germany, and you're listening to Inside Europe. If you're an opera lover, there can be no stage more enchanting than the Arena di Verona, the iconic Roman amphitheatre situated in the heart of the Italian city. Every summer it hosts a spectacular three-month-long open-air festival where some of the world's greatest tenors and sopranos have sung and continue to sing. 
This year's season kicked off last Friday with a new production of Giuseppe Verdi's Aida, starring Anna Netrebko in the title role. This year also marks the festival's 100th anniversary, so our correspondent Danny Mitzman was even more excited than usual when she bought her tickets. She knew that her opera-loving father would be excited for her too, but what she didn't know was that he had actually been there on the opening night of a different anniversary 50 years ago. One of the most exciting ones was the 50th anniversary, which, if I recall, was 1963. It was Aida. Um, I can't remember who the singers were, but I do remember that the conductor was Tulio Serafin because he had conducted the first performance at Verona in 1913. And he was back again in 1963 to conduct the 50th anniversary. And he was, he was a very sprightly old man and a fine conductor. In fact, he was Maria Caras' favorite conductor. That's my dad, Michael Mitzman. He's so passionate about opera, he learnt to speak Italian, so he could enjoy the likes of Verdi, Puccini and Rossini to the full. He is a human encyclopaedia of operatic history with a treasure trove of memories. His first time at the arena was in the 1950s. The first thing that impressed me was the participation of animals in Aida. And I seem to remember a camel and possibly an elephant I think they cut them down later on, partly probably because they left their autographs on the stage. Signed with their bottoms. <laughs> Some of my dad's most colourful operatic memories of the Arena di Verona are now a thing of the past, like the audience tradition of lighting candles as the sun went down, or another more curious one. Well, in the interval, you would have budding, particularly budding tenors, standing up and singing some of the arias from whatever opera was being performed to show that really they, they, they were worthy of a place in the opera, or whether it's simply an expression of joy at being there, which I could understand, because I wouldn't have minded singing myself. I didn't. <laughs> I bet he gave them gladiator-style thumbs up and thumbs down, though. <laughs> As the largest open-air opera house in the world, Verona's iconic Roman amphitheatre has always attracted huge numbers of foreign visitors. 40% of the audience comes from abroad, and 60% of those are German. There'll always be something magical about the Arena di Verona, but this evening in particular I'm awash with emotion. Not just because I'm here for the opening night of the 100th festival when my father was here for the 50th, but because I also have an anniversary of my own. Exactly 30 years ago, I spent the summer in this city at the end of my university year in Italy. 
My Veronese boyfriend rented cushions to those sitting on the hard stone steps, and before the gates officially opened, he'd sometimes sneak me in with him so I could stay to watch. Almost every young Veronese is involved in the festival in some way. Whether it's selling refreshments or renting cushions, appearing as an extra or singing in the chorus, for the past century, summer in Verona has always revolved around the arena. Gigi, who's now in his 50s, recalls his first season, aged 17, when he'd get just 500 lire in tips for an evening's work. The best thing, he says, was how at the end of each evening the older guys cooked for us and we'd all eat together and then play cards. It was a moment of great harmony, togetherness and fun. Another friend was on the sandwich-making team in his youth. One person cut the rolls, another sliced the ham and another added salt so they'd sell more drinks. I have two favourite memories of my own. One is the sensation after collecting up the cushions at the end of the performance. It's 2am, the lights are switched off, and you're there, in the dark silence of the amphitheatre, looking up at the stars. The other is the atmosphere outside the arena while the opera's going on inside. Long, laughter-filled evenings, sitting on the steps of the adjacent town hall, listening to jokes in Veronese dialect and making friends for life. And just like that, for the hundredth year, a summer of musical enchantment begins again. Danny Mitzman, DW, Verona. The curtain is closing on this edition of Inside Europe. Do let us know if you've enjoyed it. The feedback address is insideeurope at dw.com. That is it for today. This programme was produced by me, Kate Laycock, with help from Nick Martin and sound engineers Ziad Abu Sleiman, Michel Springer and Thomas Schmidt, with special thanks to Sascha Weinreich and Ben Batka. Inside Europe comes to you from DW in Bonn.